You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Good evening and welcome to Plato's Cave here on 3RRR, 102.7 FM. Or welcome to the podcast or the radio on-demand playback service, if you are catching up with us that way. My name's Thomas Cordwell. I'm here with Alexandra Helen-Nicholas. And we're very pleased to welcome back our guest host, Hayley Inch. Hello. How are you, Hayley? Thank you for coming in again. Oh, always a pleasure. I love gas bagging with you lot. Gas bagging? Yeah. You're, you're bringing the vernacular, girl. <laughs> I love it. As long as there's no gaslighting, that's, that's, that's fine. <laughs> um, you... you... <laughs> Wow. <laughs> I'm on a roll. I'm we just got things off to a classy start. It's great. <laughs> you were on the show several times last year and we very much enjoyed having you on. So Josh Nelson and Cerise Howard have been taking a, a bit of time off and will continue to be doing so. So you're going to be joining us this week and the next. Should I say as a disclaimer, just let people know that you are employed by Cinema Nova and two of the films we're talking about tonight are Cinema Nova exclusives. I am. So if you want to dump <laughs> a bucket of salt on any of my pronouncements <laughs> about those movies, that is totally your prerogative. But we're going to say that has nothing to do with how you're responding to the films, but we should say it anyway because people get weird about this you know, stuff. Cover your butts. Cover your butts. <laughs> yep. The spirit of transparency, which has a nice supernatural ring to it, which I believe leads very nicely to two of our films at least. Yeah, well, let's Let's talk about that. We're going to be looking at the German film Victoria, which depicts the misadventures of a young Spanish woman living in Berlin in the early hours of one morning. Uh, with a running time of almost two hours and 20 minutes, the film is notable for being shot in a sin- single continuous take. We'll also be discussing The Witch, a film set in 17th century America about a Puritan family encountering something sinister in the woods. But first we're going to start off with the the biggest of the three films tonight. They're all relatively small films, in in fact. But we're going to start off with 10 Cloverfield Lane, a film that was announced and then released with a lot of mystery surrounding exactly what it was, which was part of a deliberate marketing strategy by producer J.J. Abrams to suggest that despite being a very different film, it somehow tied into the 2008 found footage monster film Cloverfield. We probably will address that aspect of the film, but first let's look at what it is on the surface. And that's a thriller about a woman, uh, played by Mary Elizabeth Weinstead, being held in an underground bunker by a man, played by John Goodman, who may or may not be correct in his beliefs that something apocalyptic has occurred above ground. So let's first of all look at that aspect. Does this film for you, Hayley and Alexandra, work as a self-contained single-location thriller? I'll start. Actually, you know what? Before I do that, I, I need a dis- uh, while we're doing disclaimers in the spirit of uh, transparent, the spirit of transparency. Ooh, we need a theremin. Ooh. Um, <laughs> or a goat brain. <laughs> that will make sense later. Yeah. <laughs> I have a serious inexplicable crush on John Goodman. And no, I've had it for a long, long, long time. I think he's just magical on screen. I think I, um, that's perfectly acceptable. My dream film for a long, long time has been the scene at the end of Barton Fink where he gives his speech in the fiery corridor. Yep. I've basically, my ideal film is that for an hour and a half. And I have to say that probably the best thing I can say about 10 Cloverfield Lane is that this is the closest I'm ever going to get to that. John Goodman is off the chain good. I mean, he's just, he's just remarkable in this film. I... I have I have issues, capital I issues with a lot of this movie, but I think that um, 
his performance really elevates this to something above and beyond. And also Mary Elizabeth Winstead, who's got really solid uh, Scream Queen stripes. She's really earned her stripes in horror. She's done tons of stuff. She was in um, Black Christmas and The Ring 2 remake, The Thing prequel, Final Destination films and stuff. She's been in a lot of horror, so she gets it. So these performances were amazing. From a horror perspective, this sort of this idea of horror taking place in a single location, well, obviously thriller, I would have called it. Mm. Sorry, do go on. No, I actually I think that it's got horror. I think it's got horror S- yeah, history, s- like sure, it's a sure. tradition. Yep. I mean, yep. the obvious one I think would be um, Night of the Living Dead in the house, where you have sort of tensions exploding in one single place. Yep. Um, but even something like Pontypool a few years ago. Last year, there was a really great indie film called. Uh, pod or the pod Mm. which was virtually identical three people trapped in a house all hinging on the fact you know one of the one of the people is either insane and paranoid or is aware of some kind of supernatural force that that the others aren't sure is real or not that's exactly what's going on so yeah and and this was this was like an ultra ultra low budget film which is precisely what 10 cloverfield lane was originally this is a film that was Mm. made written by two guys um and it was called the cellar and then big money came in, big writers came in. And I think that my problem with this film is that you feel it very clearly is that they tacked on the Cloverfield brand, staple gunned a random branded ending to the last 20 minutes and, um, and labelled it Cloverfield. Um, yeah. And I, I, think that, I think that the first two-thirds of this film are really interesting. Um, but the, it, was just, it just felt so cynical to me how this was branded for a more kind of blockbuster audience. I think that's kind of how I felt as well. Like I, I for the most part, enjoyed this movie, though I must say if you have a lot of anxiety about watching films where women are trapped in situations where, with a threatening man, really avoid this movie because my anxiety was, was mm. through the roof through the first two-thirds of this, really. And, yeah, I really feel like the, the whole trapped-in-a-room idea is, is so compelling when it's done well and this is really anchored by three really great performances like we have John Goodman and Mary Elizabeth Winston but there's also John Gallagher Jr. Who, who, who is brilliant yeah. you probably he plays the boyfriend character in Short Term 12 if you've seen that film and all three of them are just so anchored into their characters and know what their characters mean and you know I really enjoy the fact that particularly Mary Elizabeth Winstead she's not an idiot she's not the 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 damsel in distress like her whole character is about okay I'm in this situation I need to find out where my boundaries are I need to find out how I can keep myself safe and I need to know how I can get out and she does this so intelligently that when this twist does come at the end it's, it's this horrible push-me-pull-you of just, oh, you know, why couldn't have they just continued on with what they were doing? Or if this was where they were going to end up all along, why like wasn't earlier. the entire movie that? She turns into quote-unquote plucky final girl, mm. um, which I think her character was far deeper than that to start with. It really felt like it just opted to a, a genre type Yeah, at the end. Um yeah, I mean, I look, I feel like I'm being really negative about this film. I, I did really, really, really like the start bit. And I, I, I wrote a book on found footage horror film. I've done a lot of work on the original Cloverfield. So I was fascinated watching the film, not knowing which direction it was going and wondering how is it, how does this tie into Cloverfield? Because the original film, not one of my favourite films, but I think the Matt Reeves film, and I think he's an executive producer. Yeah, they're all, in, um, yeah, he's but, involved. Yeah. yeah, Reeves did something really clever with that film and that it's very, very tied into that kind of post 9-11 anxiety i mean that's what cloverfield is about it's literally shots of of new york falling apart and people running around with handheld cameras it's impossible to watch cloverfield and not think of 9-11 so when i was watching this movie i kept thinking what 
what is it doing? How is it tying into the zeitgeist in the same way that the original one did? And I was really interested in this dynamic between these three characters because all I could think of... So John Goodman's character is very much a kind of doomsday prepper mm-hmm. um, made monstrous or amb- ambiguously monstrous. Maybe monstrous, maybe not. We're not quite sure until the end of the film. The film really plays with... That amb- ambiguity. We don't know how yeah. OK he's going to be about uh-huh. it all. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And there's something, just watching it, and obviously the film was written before the rise of Donald Trump, but the kind of mania (laughs) that we see coming out around Trump, this kind of really vicious, explicit hatred and paranoia and this... I mean, the whole US election campaign is just... It's just apocalyptic paranoia. So I was fascinated watching this, thinking that that's where it was going. Um, I don't know... Like I said, I don't think the timing syncs up. I think that the film was probably written before this stuff came into play. Um, But watching it now, I I found that really interesting. And that's what I was really thinking it was doing. It was kind of teasing out this kind of apocalyptic imagination. That mood is there in America. Like, I don't think it's a coincidence that these characters are now popping up in film at the same time as Trump's popularity. Yeah, no, um, I I totally agree with that. But I I feel that the end undid that. Yes, I I do agree with you. I think the end somewhat betrays what they're doing with that in a way that's kind of frustrating. And I, I... do also agree with you that the whole retitling this film and adding this content and tying it into the first Cloverfield film, which I adored, I really love that film, does feel cynical and unnecessary. Having said all that, I loved how bonkers this film goes. I mean, I think the best stuff is the stuff that's contained and the, the way the contained stuff kind of has its climax. But then I really enjoyed the added-on climax as, as, as well that, that, that happens beyond what the original story was going to be because it's so bonkers and berserk and unpredictable and didn't see it coming. I agree with you that it somewhat betrays a lot of what the film is setting up beforehand, but as a roller coaster ride, I went along with it and came out really exhilarated. I think that's a super interesting point because I'm, I'm one of the few defenders of From Dusk Till Dawn. And oh, I, love, I love how that film just jumps the shark at the end. It just oh, goes somewhere a, completely. Yeah. That's a fairly loved film, isn't it? Yeah. Up and down. Okay. Up and down. It's got okay. its haters. It's got its haters. But I love, the, I love that twist yeah. in that. Yeah. I, in a way, I think it's, a, it's an interesting parallel to this film because. Um, yeah, I love I love that it is, a, it is a, just a berserk, insane twist that just goes completely crazy for no apparent reason. I think what stops me finding pleasure in this film in the same way is that it's so clearly branded. Yeah. I just felt so cynical. Like, it just I'm, felt like a, hey, it's Cloverfield. Like, did, did you kind of have a moment where all of the credits came up and they went through, like, oh, produced by J.J. Abrams yeah, yeah. and, and, dude, and dude, 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 like, all of these really kind of, like, I think Alex called them um, nerd dude bros. Um, so it's people like, yeah, J.J. Abrams and and uh, the, the the script went through a rewrite from Damien Chazelle, who's the whiplash guy, and there's a lot of really the, familiar names. The guys if, if you kind of, yeah, the guys mm. with suits came in and kind of polished it up and popped the ending on and then just went, hey, hey. And but I, I tell you yeah. what I liked about this, though, more than other films of this ilk, is that at least it, it deals with mystery and ambiguity. Like, there is still no real explanation for what exactly was going on. And same with the original Cloverfield. I mean, the kind of, that kind of duty duty a kind of dude <laughs> nerdy kind of thing you're talking about often he's horribly over explained mm. and horribly trying to get that nostalgia like we saw with the star wars and star trek films etc right to an extent you know? yeah yeah i mean i hear exactly what you're saying but i think this one still gets a vote for me because at least it's it's weird mm. and they're not trying to explain everything but i think that's in keeping with the history of this sort of single cell horror 
So stuff. I mean, even even Night of the Living Dead is kind of ambiguous about what's happened. We know it's mm. we know it's zombies. Sorry, spoiler. If you haven't seen Night of the Living Dead, <laughs> uh, although they technically don't use the word zombie, but let's not just get too film nerdy here. That doesn't happen until um, dawn, does it? No, yeah. no. This is getting really geeky. We can't that? accuse other people of being film nerds. We're going to have right. this conversation. <laughs> I believe so. Oh wow. Okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, I think it's the thing. Like even even with my issues with the ending, I still feel like it is a really worthwhile film to see because what it does right, it does really really well and it's very tight and like there's there's particularly within the compound there those scenes there is no extra weight to those those scenes at all and i think you know the the success of this film also raises the interesting question that i don't necessarily have the answer to is is it feeding people's need for like a mid-level thriller kind of blockbuster thing that isn't like superheroes punching each other and isn't art house films that are made on a shoestring budget. So. And it's also the fact and that... I think that's exactly why I dug it, for that reason, Hayley. Yeah, and I think that it's that really classic thing where there's been a trend in low-budget indie cinema, which is where this film's origins are, and it gets sort of, you know, it gets swept into the mainstream. I think it's just a really classic example of that because the films that I'm thinking of, even William Friedkin's Bug... I don't know if you've seen that yeah, film. A, that's a sensational yeah. film. That's that, that, an incredible that's a different film. League. That's in a different it's, league. It's, it yeah. is really different, and I wouldn't yeah. even call that a mainstream film. Or I mean, that's something quite different. But it is yeah. that kind of single cell paranoia yep. stuff. I mean, all of these films, you know, Pontypool as well. It works because of that lack of explanation. Yeah, and actually, um, these other films you're mentioning all work better yep. because of the lack of information. Yeah, Pod, yeah. Pod last year yeah, as well was exactly the same. That that question of is this, that is, this, is this person crazy? Mm. Um, it's it's very low budget. I, I would have part of me wishes that I could see that I walked out on the last third of this mm. film, um, and part of me wishes that I that this was the seller, that this mm. was this little indie film. But yeah. the thing is, if it was a little indie film, chances are we would have missed it. Yep. None of us would be having this conversation. And they may not have got John Goodman in the cast. And, and I, I would never all, have he... had my Barton Fink yes. speech in the Look, Flaming <laughs> Corridor moment. Barton Fink is honestly one of my all time favourite films. Barton Fink. So Barton Fink. <laughs> Simpsons reference. Good. Um, Quality uh, radio. That, 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 that sequence you're describing is astonishing in Barton Fink. And what I, I, I even scribbled down, I love the way 10 Cloverfield Lane uses Goodman's physicality. His bulk. Mm. Like his the bulk. sheer size of Because often he's remarkable. a comedic figure, and in, in this there really is that sinister use. And just there's a scene where he shaves. You see, you know, he, he's got a beard in one scene, and in another scene he doesn't. And that is used in the film so effectively to give you the absolute creeps. It's, I, yeah, I'm really interested in this idea of, of softness, of male softness because the 80s you had that whole masculine hard body thing and John Goodman fits into that in a really interesting mm. way because he's he's soft but at the same I mean the, the Coens know how to use John Goodman's bulk yeah you know that's that's the whenever they work with him that's one thing that they get you know he's not so many directors reduce him to this soft character without complexity um, and he's that's that's just the opposite of this film three triple R going to talk about the film Victoria now. It's the, the latest film to make the claim that it was shot in a single take without any edits or camera breaks. And as far as I can tell, I think that is indeed the case. It's a remarkable achievement. It follows a young Spanish woman named Victoria who has recently moved to Berlin, who upon leaving a dance club one night starts to hang out with four young German men who are very proud to be the real deal, real Berliners, they repeatedly tell her. As the film unfolds in real time, Victoria ends up getting caught up in a situation involving the Berliners that becomes increasingly dangerous and tragic. What do you think, Haley and Alex? Did this film work for you? What do you think about this single take technique or is it just a gimmick? Was it necessary or not? Well, 
I kind of think, you know, I've, I've read a couple of interviews with the director, Sebastian Schipper, who you may recognise from, he's a German actor who kicked around a bit in the late 90s and early 2000s. He was in Run, Lola, Run apparently play one of the main characters in that so there you go um and um he he seemed to be very adamant that once he kind of came up with this idea that the single shot was the only way to actually express the story that he wanted to tell which was basically building up this tension with this situation where you think you're kind of in this kind of like film about a romantic hookup and then all of a sudden gangsters appear and then all of a sudden a bank heist is going to happen and it all just kind of escalates into this 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 kind of huge almost maelstrom of of incident and event and the fact that it was all filmed within you know like four or so blocks of berlin at you know 5 a.m in the morning it, it is very impressive on, on on a technical standpoint but the kind of thing i always come back to with these films that are purportedly taken in one take it's kind of like oh okay this is technically impressive do i want to watch this again will i want to come back and revisit this film you know, because, you know, Birdman purportedly done in one take or at least with a couple of really, really sneaky edits to make it look like it was one take. That was fun the first time I watched it. Never really felt the need to revisit it. And I must admit, even though Victoria, I think, is a much better film than Birdman and is definitely, you know, it's very obviously all done in one take. There's 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 no trickery involved here at all. I do kind of come back on, well, that was a really exciting watch you know, to watch once, I don't really feel like I'm going to need to come back to it at any point. I, I just want to quickly defend Birdman. As a, <laughs> I'm probably, I, I, In Josh's I knew absence. It was yeah. coming. No, it was, it, was coming. it was my favourite film from last year. I know I'm on my own. But, but Birdman didn't pretend to be one continuous shot. It had that aesthetic of being one continuous mm. shot, but there are so many impossible things that happened. It was an aesthetic that was being adopted as opposed mm. to a aren't we being clever doing this in one take? Um, yeah, s- s- small point, but I wanted to make it. Of course, um, of course. But, uh, yeah, but Victoria, and I, I love long takes, and, you know, I still think the best use of the, 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 the long in- uninterrupted take is still a touch of evil because oh God, it's yeah. all about creating tension, holding you in that moment in time. You see the bomb being placed under the car, and then for that entire sequence, you're waiting for something to happen. It's an incredible technique to, cap- to create tension. In terms of contemporary films, I think Children of Men did some extraordinary things with, again, faked long takes, though those scenes were heavily constructed, but it had the aesthetic of being done all at once. So I guess that's the idea here, trying to create that incredible tension of no camera edits. But... um. And I've heard very different opinions about this film as well, but there were stretches of this film where I was sitting there thinking, I'm just watching people getting from A to B. I wish they just put in an edit out edit here and cut this film down to 90 minutes because I would have liked a series of long takes as opposed to one gigantic long take. There were stretches of this film where I was really sort of starting to twiddle my thumbs. Um, having said that, I did sort of overall enjoy it. Like, I, I do think it's a it, it's a good film. Um, I had trouble with the plausibility, though, of some of the characters. It, it's interesting to hear that the director said he wanted to create the idea of it being maybe a romantic encounter one night that then gets dark because from the word go, to me, it was very obvious these four German guys who seem nice enough were obviously involved in something a bit dodgy. And, and I did really struggle to believe that this woman would just randomly start hanging out with these four guys who are clearly trying to steal the car the first time she meets them. Um, there is a scene later on where we realise that, you know, uh, sh- she's come to Berlin because a major part of her life has, has collapsed in a heap, so maybe there is a sense of recklessness going on. But 
I don't know, maybe I needed that information earlier to, to sort of go along with, with, with her actions and continually being involved with these, gu- with these guys who just obviously seemed like they were up, up to no good. <laughs> <laughs> One of... I'm going to start somewhere a little bit sort of I guess indirect, uh, indirectly related. I think one of the most interesting and one of the most important film editors, sound editors in film, is a guy called Walter Murch, who wrote a book called In the Blink of an Eye. And his argument um, in that book, amongst, I mean, it's essential reading if you've got any kind of interest in film, but one of the things that he argues is that editing, film editing works because it replicates the blink of the eye. We blink 20 to 30 seconds times a, a minute. We're used to seeing the world cut like that Mm. so when films like this um when we have this long take or single take film it's deliberately working against a kind of biological imperative that we we have through that eye blink that 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 traditional cinema replicates and i think coming from such a a radical point single take films have real potency for politics and i don't mean just political genre films but i think that they can do some really powerful really really interesting things we see that in rope which of course wasn't one single tape because they didn't have the technology it's impossible to do it but then, hitchcock yeah. did mm. his best and i you know it was one of hitchcock's least favorite of his own films but i think that he got into the really into the the queerness and i mean that in a lot of different ways of that particular adaptation of that kind of leopold and loeb story i think there's a lot going on there this single take has been um, approach has been used. What I find most interesting is that predominantly it's not been used in Western cinema. It's been used in Colombian film, Chilean film, Israeli film, uh, Iranian film, yeah. Fish mm-hmm. and Cat. Oh, Fish and Cat. The yeah. whole time I was watching this, it's like, oh, why aren't I watching Fish and Cat? These films aren't capital P political, but I think that they understand the power in doing the single take. I'm sceptical that Victoria did this as anything but a gimmick. I'm very fond of Berlin. I've had some of the happiest times in my life in Mitte, which is where a lot of this film was shot. Um, it, it felt like Berlin porn to me. Um, it felt like... I remember joking watching it in my head, just... <laughs> it felt like one take, Lola, one take. I didn't even know that he had a connection with Tom Twyker, and I found that out afterwards, and it's like, of course he does. Mm. Of course he does. It just... Um, I love the soundtrack... I was unimpre- it just felt really gimmicky to me. I was really um, unmoved by the decision. There was at no point outside of it, oh, isn't it immersive? Like, it, it just felt really, really yeah. shallow to me. I, I think it's an interesting film to watch on the back of a film that I believe is getting a local re-release very soon on the cinema, which is Russian Ark. Yeah. Give like pack a bong for Russian art, people. <laughs> you love that expression. <laughs> I'm just Russian art's an extraordinary film. But but curiously, I've heard people say, "Well, sure, Russian art is great, but try doing that with a narrative film, and it'd be far more impressive." Well, I've got to say, I think Russian art's close to being a masterpiece. Uh, yeah. If not, it is a masterpiece because of what they orchestrate and the way they convey space and time with that long take. Exactly. Um, and if you want narrative enjoy flash dance like go for that knock yourself out like yeah. there are other things in film than narrative and i i just um yeah watch it'll be interesting to see i've never seen russian arc on the big screen so i'm so excited about well, that and on the back good. of victoria like <laughs> yeah. i'm really I'm, I'm really really the best thing i can say about victoria is that it's made me really really eager to see russian arc again yeah i must admit i i, I think i'm a bit more jazzed on victoria than than you both but i also yeah i flagged really heavily by the last half hour i was kind of just seeing they're just going like oh okay they're going to wrap this 
this up. They go wrap this up. And there's also the fact that um, there wasn't actually a, a dialogue script to this. Um, all of the all of the actors are essentially improvising. Like they were given sketches of what they had to do at certain points during the film, and they just ran with it. And sometimes that works out really, really well. Like I, I you've really got to credit, like particularly the lead actress, uh, Laia Costa. She's great. She's, she's really great. Really she carries the film. You're yep. with her the entire I would way. Definitely agree with and that. like this is this is some heavy duty, you know, act, actively lifting that's going on here. But you have portions that work, and then other portions where you're just seeing they're just going, oh wow, they are really struggling to keep this going. And I think that's the thing. I think the film runs out of puff. I think it needs to be a lot shorter. Um, but you know, it's it's that thing again of are you impressed by the tech of, of of the technical feat of it? If you are, you'll probably have a great time. I, I know plenty of people who said that this was one of their favourite films yeah, of the year. It's too. impressed a lot of me people. Too. It's it, it's probably definitely worth a look. But yeah, I I struggled by the end. I, I did really enjoy it, but I really was conscious of how long it was, and it was only that long because they weren't able to tighten the action because it was shot in real time, and 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 I think. That is, a, that is a drawback. Uh, and I will agree that the acting, the acting was great. I was slightly annoyed that they chose to have characters who spoke languages different to each other, so the way they communicated was both speaking English as a second language. And that I found it really hard to listen to that the whole time. That actually ended up being quite an issue for the film because yeah. it disqualified it from an Oscar nomination for Best mm. Foreign Film because yeah. it was too much English. Well, it's nearly all in English, and they still subtitle it anyway. I, I kind of wish they just went with the native language of one, of you know, either they went with German or, or Spanish. And I don't normally worry about plausibility. You know, I get irritated by people who, who pull apart beautiful films or ideas because it doesn't work in their idea of the real world. But but this film did have a number of moments that just pulled me outside of it. There's, and a, I think that there's that a taxi that shows up at the towards the end of this film really out of the blue in a situation yeah. where you wouldn't have thought they would be allowing taxis through and stuff like that constantly broke the spell for me. I don't think that's your fault because I think the form itself encourages that aspect of verisimilitude. Yeah. Like, it, it makes you think, oh, isn't this, isn't this really real? Like, so I think that... I mean, I... I I found it really tedious. Perhaps it was just a bit overrated for me when I went in and um, the gimmick, I've just seen it done better. Mm. I've just seen it done better so many times from from places that perhaps that's my bias, just from places that I haven't seen other stories from so much. You know, I've seen Run Lola Run. I've, I know I know Berlin. You know, I don't know it well, well but I know it Ber- enough to... You know what I mean? Like Berlin has just become London and New York. It's maybe that's where, like it's I said, Berlin porn. Go to for a, for a year, yeah. and then, although I'm told Berlin's been ruined because all the Australian artists moved there. And <laughs> yes, I've heard that as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, or did, did we just get very snobby there? Possibly <laughs> just a tad. Victoria, Russian yeah. arc. <laughs> well, we, 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 I reckon we, we should cover Russian arc when the re-release happens. That's an extraordinary film. But we have been talking about Victoria. Haley and I did like it with reservations. Three. Which has finally got a small cinema release in Australia after over a year of buzz and anticipation from its various festival screenings all around the world. Set in New England in America in the 17th century, it was inspired by folk tales and accounts at the time of supposed incidents of witchcraft, predominantly focused on a young teenage girl named Thomason. The Witch is about her and her puritanical family responding to what appears to be an evil presence in the woods next to the farm that they live on uh, in isolation. 
Alex, this has arrived with an enormous amount of hype, which is not always the best thing for a film. Did The Witch live up to your expectations? Well, look, I went in with hype fatigue to this movie. I remember watching um, the responses come out of Sundance last year. Sundance? Sundance. 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 Yeah. Oh, now I'm going to be all strange about it. That <laughs> festival over there. Sundance. Sundance. S- say it like a puritanical Say it like you would. mean it. Yes. That's mm. Sundance. <laughs> Look, and some of the, I mean, the feedback that I was hearing when it first played was diabolical. One of my, um, a film critic that I adore is a guy called Russ Fisher, just a beautiful writer, and he described it as having the only film having the same effect on him that discovering heavy metal as a teenager had. And I just thought that was such an evocative description of a film. And so I've been waiting to see this. I missed it at MIFF last year. And by the time I got here, we have all this, you know, this marketing hype that it's the scariest film ever made. And I was like, I mean, if we weren't doing it for the show, I don't know if I even would have gone and seen it. I was really exhausted from the hype for this film. There was no way that it could have lived up to it. And I went in and it just ripped my face off i actually came out i think i said like it's underhyped like i mean it just i just thought it was an extraordinary experience what i wasn't expecting for so much of the of the hot air going around about this film everybody's saying oh it's doing something really new no 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 this is doing something really old this is a really really old-fashioned horror movie this reminded me obviously the plot the story, the setting is, you know, it's very much the crucible, that kind of stuff. But this really reminded me more in tone and mood of Scandinavian horror film. Um, it, the only other film I can describe that made me feel like this is Ingmar Bergman's Hour of the Wolf. Um, you know, to, I mean, Haxan, you know, these, these amazing Scandinavian films. And I think the really key term for me was earnest. It's a really earnest film. There's no postmodern smugness to this film. It's not hysterical. Um, and I can see why this would come across as something quite different because I just can't remember the last time I saw a horror film that was this earnest. Um, and I, it just it just swept me off my feet. I mean, it's it references, but it's it's art historical. I mean, the whole film moves towards a reference to a Goya painting, so it's it's very traditional. It's very painterly. It's it's got history in it in a lot of different ways. Um, and and it's and its politics really appeal to me. But perhaps we can get onto that. Shortly, when one of you and I stop hype, but I stop gas bagging. <laughs> you can always gas bag that horror, Alex. <laughs> well, you're, you're not a horror person, as such, no, are you, I'm, I'm How a, did you cope with this? I'm a horror weenie. I actually, Alex actually had to like pep talk me and and like, it's okay, it's not that scary, you'll be fine. And she she was actually right. Like, if if you are a person who does not like graphic horror, this this movie does not do that at all. Um, I kind of came out of it feeling you know it it is a horror film but it's also less a horror film and more a film about horrific things and particularly the horrific things that belief will will result in people doing you know i i I think the amazing conceit of this film is that it treats its characters beliefs with such an utmost not not quite respect but it believes in what they believe it doesn't discount what they believe it fully believes that the the things that they think are in the wood are real and they're terrifying and they're worth being scared about and this family are reacting for very very good reasons in in the way that they are i think it's a really interesting film about um yeah about about beliefs and uh sexuality and just how puritanism puritanism in any form will basically end up with people 
um, restricting themselves and trying to twist themselves into things that human beings are not meant to be or are not capable of being. Um, yeah. Uh, this is one of those films where I think it's a sensational film objectively, but I didn't, I didn't feel it in the end. It kind of lost me a little bit, and I think it was maybe to do with some of the overhype. Maybe I saw it when I was a little bit tired. And also for some really superficial personal reasons, which I might just throw out there just, I don't know, for the sake of acknowledging them before I talk about properly why this is a very good film, I, I struggle with ye olde dialogue and that kind of Royal Shakespeare type acting and the, the, the adult characters in this film just annoyed me both the, the kind of I'm a crazy mother and and I am the father statesman ye oldie children I have a beard all that kind of thing <laughs> I, 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 I struggled with that's just an, you know, an issue I, I, I have and um, thou, thou does not like delicious things Thomas yeah no. well that, that scene was fantastic <laughs> um, I love I love the goat in this film <gasps> I love Phillip. the children yeah. I mean this um, oh the kids are amazing and yeah. Taylor Joy, who is the lead, is a revelation. She's extraordinarily good. Uh, the boy who plays Caleb is incredibly good. Harvey Scrimshaw, which is also a fabulous name. <laughs> that's, a, that's a fun name to say. And uh, the, 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 the two younger kids who play the twins just nail that kind of creepy young child thing. Um, and like what, a lot of what you said, this film really goes with its own mythology. It is, it is giving voice and form to all the myths about witchcraft and where they came from at this time. And it was all heavily to do with fear and anxieties about young girls coming into to, to womanhood and that, and that's those links are quite explicitly stated and all this stuff that poor Thomason is falsely accused of sort of manifests in in reality and I love the way the film went with that you were touching on this Alex that you know for Almost two decades now, horror has become so self-reflexive and postmodern, and just a little bit, you know, very fond of drawing attention to itself. And I think we are starting to see a new form of horror that's going back to more traditional horror that is acknowledging these social issues but running with it without making any overt statement. And I think The Babadook does it in its own way. I think It Follows does it in its own ways. It's revelling in some of these ideas, especially to do with anxieties around sexuality, and it's not giving us a lecture or a sermon on it. It's just going with it, and that gives us enormous amount of material to take away and, and digest. And The Witch certainly delivered that. I've been more excited talking about this film than I was actually seeing it, uh, to the point that I... You know, I'm sitting here saying I, I, I was a bit disappointed by it, but I cannot wait to go and see it again because I, sus I suspect the second time I see it, it might blow my mind then. Yeah, I think I think it's another film like every single film we've talked about tonight <laughs> where the ending is it, it's going to leave you either way. I think I was a little bit... I kind of expected it to be a bit more extreme than what it was, particularly because, you know, the director, David Eggers, he did these years of research into all of these primary materials based around the Puritan era in America and, like, look, the Puritan were thought some wacky shit, particularly mm. about the occult. and a lot of that dialogue is yeah. lifted straight from that research. Yeah, a lot of a lot of the dialogue is is yeah d direct quotations, and so I was kind of expecting it to be a bit more all out than it was. Um, I was also expecting, considering what I'd read previously, there's a lot of people who have it in for this film in terms of how it's portraying female sexuality. A lot of people just saying it's this horrible regressive thing where you know women are conflated with the devil and and that sort of thing. And honestly, I find that argument just 
look, you can have that argument. You can find stuff in the film to back you up, but it's very boring. But people said that also about yeah. It Follows. You know, It Follows is just demonising sex again, or the Babadook is just demonising... You're just creating the monstrous feminine again. I yeah, think look, all I, these films... I've already said my piece, yeah. I've <laughs> I've actually got... I've written an article precisely on this um, for Overland. Can I give that a plug? It's, it hasn't been published yet, but it's going to come out. Your work on Overland is sensational. Um, Go thank ahead. You. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. It hasn't been published yet, but it's coming out. But it's precisely on this, and I think... The monstrous feminine is a, is it was a really important moment in nineties feminist film theory. It is not the mid nineties. Let's let go of it. Let's keep extending these ideas. And I'm, Barbara Creed is a, a remarkable feminist film theorist. I'm sure that she would encourage the continuation of her work rather than us just beating that same drum over and over and over again for twenty years. Let it go. Let's keep moving. What I thought this film did that was so important, like I rally very strongly against precisely that argument mm. because what I think this film does is something on a on a it's not a political film. You don't go and see this because you want to see a radical feminist film. And I really hate labels that are simple, simplistic like that. I, w- I don't call this a capital F feminist film because I just think that that defeats the purpose and it shuts down discourse rather than opens it up. What I really liked about this film is that it shows different women of different ages adopting the characteristics of the monstrous feminine for different reasons. We see young, we see a young girl playing a witch. We see an adolescent girl playing a witch. We see sexy young women playing a witch. We see an old woman playing a witch. We see uh, the mother associated with this image of the witch. We have a diversity of witchiness in this film. And the reasons why these these persona are adopted are very different. And sometimes they're to condemn women. Sometimes it's to liberate women. And I love this diversity. I think it's radical. I think that embracing your own monstrosity from a feminist film perspective can have radical potential. And I think that that film criticism has really downplayed that. I think it's played it really straight like any... I mean, mean, The Babadook's a classic example. Um, Like, to me, dismissing that as as, as a kind of regressive, monstrous feminine just completely ignores why that film is so important about the struggles of women (laughs) with children. (laughs) There's also the danger of turning film into just being a series of political statements. didactic. Rather than art that explores these ideas. It can be both. It can do lots of things. Yeah, Babadook, It Follows and The Witch, I think all three films that are giving form to cultural anxiety so we can have that conversation. The fact that it's not explicitly making any statement... Are, isn't the strength of all these yeah, all no, these To films. me, this film is really important because it has a diversity of witches, is, is the yeah. short version of my little rant that I just yeah. gave. I mean, I think that it's um, yeah. commendable for that. Yes, and honestly, at the end of the day, if you take anything out of the witch, it's that Satan, Satanism, pretty good deal. Butter me up, Satan. I'm ready. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually, yeah. I think I'm with you on that. So I'm yeah. going to join our, join yeah, our look, coven. Yeah, I, I, I was a bit like <laughs> Hayley where I was, a, I was a bit let down by the ending as well. I was expecting more, but I think that has a lot more to do with the baggage and expectations I brought to the film. The more I think about it, the more I'm like, yeah, this is this is an alternative that I think should be embraced. Are you I talking mean, about Satanism? Yeah, like, definitely. Right. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I, I, well, well, it, it, the, the film was actually um, uh, recommended by the Satanist Church in America. They 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 said it was a wonderfully positive Satanist film, and they encouraged all of their congregations to see it. So Satanism has been getting a bad rap for a while well, in it's, cinema. It's converted so. us to our dark lord, hasn't it? <laughs> Indeed, I'm I'm ready to be so, selling out myself for dairy products any moment now. I, I don't know what to do though. Now I don't. I don't think that I don't think Plato's Cave's ever quite ended with all of us selling our soul to Satan on air before. Am I correct? This is a first. Yeah, this, this is live radio, people. This this 
episode of podcast. Plato's Cave has, <laughs> has gone horribly wrong. Not today, Satan. Not today. We've been talking about 10 Cloverfield Lane. That is on general release through Paramount Pictures. Victoria is screening exclusively at Cinema Nova through Madman Entertainment. And The Witch is screening exclusively at Cinema Nova through Universal Pictures. Uh, you've been listening to myself, Thomas Cordwell, with Alexandra Helen Nicholas and our guest host, Hayley Inch. The three of us will all be back next week, hopefully, if we haven't ascended to, or descended. Damn, to damn, damn, damn. for all time. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.